Welcome to The Curb Cut Effect. My name is Calvin Finzeifeld, and today I'll be speaking with Dean Caravidi. Dean is a human-computer interaction specialist who works at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dean has worked on a number of really fascinating projects over the course of his long career in healthcare, working on the interaction between healthcare systems and the patients, families, clinicians, doctors, nurses, and many other healthcare professionals who rely on them. Dean has a passion for accessibility and for the health outcomes of those with disabilities, among many, many other very interesting passions. So today I'm going to be talking with him about the portion of his work that intersects in very interesting ways with what we do at More Canvas, especially the aspects of his work that have an impact on members of the disabled community. Hi, Dean. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. Hi, Calvin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I guess my first question is just what brought you to your current field and what inspired this rather unorthodox and, and, and really fascinating path to human-computer interaction and occasionally some accessibility work there, too? Well, I think everything in my career has been the result of a lucky accident or, or coincidence. So going way back to the 90s, I was um, very interested. I've always been interested in music, and I had um, was uh, obsessed with music technology recording technology so my apartment kind of looked like was essentially a recording studio looked like the bridge of the enterprise or something and um is, i think you're familiar with music technologies realize it's a lot about software and hardware that can be digital or analog and all these devices are connected and communicate with each other and can control each other so anyways at that time I, a friend of mine who was also into uh, music technology was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and soon after his diagnosis, he started having problems using the computer and the keyboard. So, for example, combination keystrokes like you know shift, control, command, etc. He came to me and he said, you know, we wanted to work together and trying to find you know some solution or some way to help with this. So we were so naive, and this was back again in 1993 or something. We actually looked in the phone book, thinking there'd be this store that would have all types of solutions and devices for people with disabilities. Of course, there wasn't any store, uh, and then we 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 started getting really active through CompuServe, like it was a sort of social media of the day, and uh, found different people who had different ideas and solutions. For example, we rigged up foot pedals to act as these keys for this keyboard, so we do the combination keystrokes. Hey, one thing led to another. We met people that he knew through his uh, MS support group. All of them were struggling to use technology and didn't really have any resources to help them. So we kind of became this sort of de facto group to help. And then that led to um, an occupational therapist who was working with a woman with a severe, severely disabled from MS. She'd been confined to bed for like 10 years and she wanted to use a computer. Really, she had no activity during the day and her um, clinical team really wanted her to do something that she really enjoyed. So what she wanted to do was write stories, maybe, maybe in a biography, in effect, with a computer. But using a computer, even with a special keyboard, she could only type it something like five characters per minute. Anyways, they went to a rehab facility and they said, yes, we can set you up with a computer that could help you with some assistive technology, but it would cost $20,000. So they didn't have the money. Anyways, this occupational therapist asked me if I would take this on. I was absolutely terrified. I'd never done anything like this before. But um, 
they worked together and we actually created a system for her that went beyond just the assistive input devices where we did a lot of automation, um, you know, taking mundane tasks and automating them for her using, I don't know if you, it's way before your time, Apple script, uh, you know, different sort of automation things with Macs. Anyways, by doing that, I learned with, I had no training, of course, in human interaction or usability methods, but almost because it was so challenging and working with the challenges of, of someone who's disabled, you almost have to apply these methods by default, otherwise it won't work. So for example, iteration, knowing that your first design idea, you might think it's brilliant and it can fail utterly and you'll need to come back and, and iterate on that. User testing, continually iterating, involving the user, and of course, throughout the process. So anyways, all of that led to, I was working in um, research in uh, healthcare at University, University of Michigan Hospital. And uh, both of my interests led to going back to school, to grad school at the University of Michigan School of Information in human computer interaction. Wow. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And one aspect of your work that I find really interesting and, and, and personally very compelling is your work in making patient and family facing portals and systems more accessible. How would you describe the current state of these types of things at your average healthcare system or hospital in the States right now? And where do you hope to see it go? And what do you think are those tangible next steps to improving improving the experience of patients with maybe some sort of disability? Sure. Well, the use of, um, I, a lot of people refer to them as patient portals. These were obviously accelerated uh, in every way by COVID. Doctors weren't sure, hospitals weren't sure if they really wanted to use them or how to use them. Patients weren't really on board in some cases. And insurance companies at first weren't sure about how they would pay for using these systems, you know, for like the virtual visits. Anyways, that really accelerated their use. And I do think the vendors uh, we can talk about the usability and accessibility of the clinician-facing system separately. There's a lot of room for improvement there. But I do think they're paying a lot more attention to the accessibility of these systems and have been for some time. So that's the good news. What, what's still a challenge is you know, we can make a system accessible, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be usable. Uh, I have a quote. I worked with a gentleman or met a gentleman years ago. He was part of a government board on disability and accessibility. And he had this quote, I, I, I'll never forget it. He said, I can't wait, he, uh, he was visually impaired. And he said, I can't wait until health information technology is fully accessible so I can experience the same poor usability as everyone else. <laughs> that's, that's and I think we've, we've uh, maybe achieved that uh, for him and for everybody. So uh, to me, it's a simplification, but accessibility is something we know how to do. In, in some ways, you can think about making technology accessible like building codes. So I could build a house. I couldn't personally build a house. We could build a house that could meet all the building codes. It could be a horrible house. It could be hideous, and no one would want to live in with a bad layout. So, so these uh, accessibility, again, does not necessarily lead to usability, but the two are, are connected. Anyways, think about usability issues with patient portals and other patient-facing technology in, in sort of levels of severity. So... The first level is it's just to be a nuisance. Um, so, for example, I uh, did something stupid. I hurt my shoulder. I had to see a an orthopedic surgeon um, and uh, physical therapy. And one day, a, a couple of days after my visit, I, I was sitting at home. I had like nine text messages from the portal. Uh, each was very generic. You have new information in the portal. So, of course, I had to log in the portal, see what each of these messages were. They were very simple, like, you know, when you have an appointment reminder, uh, here's an after-visit summary, you have a lab result, et cetera. So wondering why, like like my bank, why can't these texts give me more information? 
mm-hmm. um, you know, make things a little more usable. And when we talk about these problems, a lot of people, without really knowing or even having the evidence, will say, oh, it's HIPAA, we have to protect privacy. Like, I think we use that as an excuse too often. These messages could easily say something like, you have a, a new message from your doctor, you have a lab result, you have an appointment reminder. Mm-hmm. Something like that would be very simple. Yeah. I always said like more. Another, another going up a little in complexity there is an issue called interoperability, the, the inability of these systems to really connect and share information. So if even from the same company, so, so if I go to three, four different doctors, more than likely I have three, four different portals. I, 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 I don't have very complex healthcare and yet I have three, four portals. I have University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Jefferson, and my own primary care doctor who I saw in Philadelphia. And so none of these systems really, they sort of kind of connect but they don't result in you having a single source of truth record. Uh, in fact, all four might be actually missing or inaccurate in some way. So that's another problem. Uh, another problem too is, okay, we have all this information. Can we make the information usable or accessible in the traditional sense of the word accessible, meaningful to uh, patients or families? So I was part of a little paper in a study led by this woman named Polly Tremula, who's a human factors expert so many years ago, where we looked at the after visit summary, how usable are the after visit summaries? You know, when you um, when you leave a doctor's appointment, they either print this out or tell you it's on the portal. And these are mandated by the Meaningful Use program with the government, where hospitals and doctor's offices had to demonstrate they were using portals and other technology effectively. After visit summary is one of those measures. However, in our study of this AVS, the after visit summary, first we did what's called a heuristic review, something in usability. There's principles of good design and methods and way of sort of critiquing some system, and we found this like, printed document had like 200 uh, usability and heuristic violations, so it was really poorly designed. Then we also showed that even doctors couldn't understand <laughs> the document or the information in it. And, uh, and then there was a lot of you know, really, really strange things in the document. You know, one of the quotes I think Polly had that I loved in the paper was, why would an after-visit summary include the marital status, a field for the marital status of a two-year-old? Yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, and then finally, the, the the highest level, which is really, really important, maybe not so much, we'll come back to that with patient portals, but healthcare technology in general is issues of safety. Uh, healthcare has, uh, has had a long challenge with errors and safety events. While the EHR has the potential to, the electronic health record, excuse me, has the potential to improve safety, um, there's a number of researchers who have shown that it actually can create new types of safety events called unintended consequences, most often due to poor design, poor usability. Um, and then within that, we know that children are actually overall more likely to encounter or experience a medical error than adults for a number of reasons. For example, they can't communicate in many cases when they're very young, but the main issue seems to be uh, medication dosing errors because kids, unlike adults, when we give them a certain a lot of different medications, the dosing is based on their weight. So if that information is incorrect or the calculations are incorrect in the EHR, that can result in, in some kind of mistakes and errors. From that, I've also wondered, maybe one of the few good ideas I've had over the years, and I didn't pursue this, but I, I really be interesting if someone did, is just as we know that children might have, um, again, be more susceptible to medical errors, are people with disabilities? What is happening with them in terms of medical errors? Are they more likely to experience medical errors? I would bet for some, scenarios they probably are. I don't know if there's any existing research. I did a, a little searching, literature searching a long time ago. I didn't really see anything about that, but it, maybe someone has that information. If not, it'd be, it'd be something worth, worth studying. Just hearing you describe sort of the patient portal space, 
it sort of reminds me of a recent conversation I had with someone at DQ who was sort of saying that like, in some ways, the accessibility on offer for, you know, kind of larger institutions, and this was more in the context of for profit, but you know, like, you know, companies with, you know, a market cap of, you know, over $50 million, right, like their access to accessibility and usability is just so much greater than smaller things. And I, yeah, my experience with the accessibility of, let's say, Michigan Health or Michigan Medicine Portal, the accessibility there is much, much stronger than some of these smaller practices or that is one area that I've I've had to work with a little bit is be a for-profit or, or, or not-for-profit or, or healthcare or otherwise, but, you know, it's kind of like these more, uh, you know, so, sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, well, we need a um, third-party plugin that does scheduling for, like, a nail salon or something, right? And, like, that's, I think, one of the most difficult areas to even find that bare minimum of accessibility where it's like the focus can genuinely move from one item to the next without getting trapped or, or you know, something absolutely horrific happening. I um, see. Another thing, you know, I just thought of this, but another thing that I think we should be aware of is that most healthcare information technology has been stimulated, you could say, directly by the High Tech Act from the Obama administration in 2008. So the High Tech Act, in my simple terms, basically said to hospitals and doctor's offices, if you implement an electronic health record and it meets these meaningful use criteria, you will receive higher reimbursements for Medicare and Medicaid. So this is like a very government-generated set of massive economic activity, and some of these companies have, have made a lot of money in developing these systems. So I know it's not direct, but usually if you're like a federal contractor, you have to have accessible systems. So it'd be nice to see if uh, these companies were maybe in some ways more accountable to be accessible than a typical company because in an indirect way they have benefited from federal programs. I do wonder the extent to which the federal government is able to actually assess the accessibility of of these portals, right? Because that that is a you know you know because there are all these companies that are government contractors and they're legally required to comply with section what is it five hundred eight. But as as we all know, I mean, there are so many government contractors that are way way beneath any even hint of digital accessibility. And I think the reason why it's unenforced is just there isn't really an enforcement agency. So I do wonder in the healthcare space how well the federal government keeps track of the accessibility of the practices taking advantage of the High Tech Act. You know, I, I'm not aware of that. And I, again, that's not my expertise. I should have started with a disclaimer at the start of the interview that I am not an expert in a lot of these things. I just kind of pass my information I've heard or learned from other people's work. But I do know that the government has started to in effect, have different vendors certify their usability methods in these systems. But I don't know if that includes anything about accessibility. I'll look into that. But and the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, when we think about using healthcare information, who's going to be using healthcare information technology like a portal? People who are injured, sick, or, or have an illness. And that, so that include, of course, would include everybody, but people with disabilities or people with temporary disabilities. So it's the argument to having this technology accessible is probably stronger than almost anything else. Yeah. Another area in which you've devoted some time is accessibility of employee-facing or clinician-facing you know, systems within a healthcare system. And yeah, I think that's a really interesting field. I think a lot of people forget that you know disabled people often are also trying to have, have a job and have a livelihood. And it's just as important for 
employee-facing things to be accessible as customer-facing things, client-facing, patient-facing, digital environments. So yeah, I would love to know kind of, you know, what inspired that project and how you feel like it went and, and, and sort of what, um, how you see all of that going, uh, going forward. Well, first of all, I am a little plug. I think hospitals are, and I think hospitals are really great places to work that have a lot of opportunities for lots of different people and different interests, career interests. So uh, a little quote here, uh, Peter Drucker, who's sort of the father of modern business management or the modern corporation, he's, he wrote like 20 some odd books or so. And of the business people, I think, uh, of course, know him much more than I do. But he has a quote that we use all the time where he said, the, probably the most complicated organization ever created is the hospital. And one of the factors he cited as adding that complexity or contributing that complexity was job roles, the number of job roles. So for example, our hospital, I think has maybe 20,000 employees and maybe 4,000 different job roles. Some job roles just have one single person like mine. So that's one of the things that makes hospitals really complicated, all the different work, all the people collaborating in different ways over time to care for patients. Then you add a research hospital like ours, it's even more complicated. But within those job roles, we have positions that are available to anyone from you know from who might have a high school diploma or even a GED all the way up to you know these these scientists who have both an MD and a PhD. Along with that, a lot of people think because the EHR was adopted somewhat late that hospitals really didn't use technology. Hospitals are actually very complex technology environments with a lot of information and data. So, for example, our electronic health record is actually not just one system, but 35 or so different applications that are all integrated it's all from the same vendor. So there's one to run the operating room, one for the emergency department, one for outpatient, pharmacy, radiology, et cetera. And so all of those are, are used in many different ways by many different people. Add another 70 or so, I think, clinical applications to that. I, I asked someone in our IT department for all of this. So that's 100 clinical applications right there. Then we have apparently 400 or so business applications. So now we have 500 applications. So right there, I think we have a huge accessibility challenge. How can we make sure all 500 applications are accessible? I don't have the answer to that, of course. Um, and also all the, uh, all the data that these systems generate, especially the EHR, support all types of work, not just research, but safety, quality improvement. And so there's a lot of new jobs all the time in, in finding new ways to use that data to constantly improve healthcare. So back to the EHR, when we think of electronic health record, we think, oh, it's used by doctors and nurses. But that's, that's really not true. It's used by many more people. Almost everyone in the hospital uses it in some way. So for example, you have a lot of um, administrative people, the people who register you and, and check you in, the patient service representatives. There's hundreds and hundreds of those jobs. There's also respiratory therapists, radiology techs, uh, social workers, et cetera, through the system. But even people like environmental services use uh, the EHR. And you wonder, why are they using electronic health record? Because the EHR does more than just chart a patient and order medications or labs. It actually manages all the resources within a hospital, including rooms. So when a room is, uh, someone is discharged, that room needs to be cleaned. It's used to then communicate to the environmental services room, you know, 104 needs to be cleaned. And then when they clean it and it's ready for the next patient, they will then enter that information in the system. So on and on and on. There's so many different types of roles for the EHR. It's called user profiles. There's even, I even found two for hospital chaplains. They'll actually put notes in about their meetings or something with a patient or family in the EHR. So anyway, to so sum up, I think hospitals are really great environments with lots of different types of jobs for any type of education background you can think of. Uh, however, there's a lot of information technology available, which is good, but that presents accessibility challenges. I feel like I've just been doing nothing but bad news. There is some good news. <laughs> uh, so academic hospitals are not 
mandated under, I think, Section 503. We were talking about sections before. Again, I'm not an expert in this. So federal contractors should have uh, like 7% of their employee population be people with disabilities. Academic hospitals do receive some federal funding, but they're not mandated to do that. But some choose to try and do that or, or to achieve those goals. So our hospital is, uh, and they have this program called CHOP Career Path, uh, so, excuse me, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, that CHOP is the acronym it's known in Philadelphia. Um, and they have a program where they're hiring lots of young adults with disabilities, but they, they're actually, most of them, or a lot of them, are coming from our patient population. And so they're kids, they're not kids anymore, they're young adults, but they're kids that who have sort of grown up as patients uh, of our either clinics or hospital. And so that's a great uh, sort of uh, resource and connection where these social workers and others work with identifying these kids. And there's, I don't know, between 50 and 100 of them now working in all different areas of the hospital, all types of different jobs. And I believe other hospitals are, I think Cincinnati Children's is doing something very similar. So yeah, I wanted to end it on a, on a positive note there, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. And uh, yeah, for uh, another positive note would be, uh, what are some trends overall, either that you observe through your work or just more generally um, when it comes to accessibility or, or disability that you find really encouraging or, or that really excites you? You know, I think in healthcare, there's a few things that are happening there's uh, this concept of patient-centered care. We're thinking more about the patient and designing not just information technology, but all the systems and processes to be more centered on the patient and what they need and families too, family-centered care, community-centered care. There's a lot happening with that. That can certainly and will and does uh, include people with disabilities. So that's really, uh, I think, a great sort of direction things are moving in. And we know, we haven't really talked about this, but we know that people with disabilities in general um, have a lot of uh, socioeconomic challenges, have a lot of problems with employment, independence, income, et cetera. So they're, they're really stressed in terms of socioeconomics. And there's a lot of work in looking at how socioeconomics overall and, and what we call social determinants of health can impact poor outcomes and how we can improve that. So that's a, a whole area of study there that again can and does include people with disabilities as well as people uh, with um, you know certain minorities and, and different populations. So again, not so much, I don't really have anything in terms of technology. I think that's always gonna improve and that's almost in some ways the easy part, I think. But these more socio-technical sort of movements and ideas are really where um, things can change and, and that seems to be exciting. There's a lot of potential there, but it does move slowly. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure hearing about your work and your perspective. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, thank you.